Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. My guest today is Peter Diamandes. He is chairman and CEO of XPRIZE Foundation and a key figure in the personal spaceflight industry. Peter, welcome. My pleasure. So you're going to be uh, uh, keynoting our opening general session at the PRSA International Conference in Orlando. Um, and you're going to be talking to us uh, about a number of things. Uh, but I wanted to start first by asking you, how an MD from Harvard got into the personal spaceflight industry. Kind of different, huh? Well, it's actually uh, kind of the reverse. I, I grew up, born in the 60s, grew up with Apollo, became uh, incredibly inspired by space and wanted very much to become an astronaut and realized along the way that uh, one way to do it was to become a doctor because a lot of the astronauts, if you weren't a professional Air Force pilot, so to speak, becoming a physician was the next best career to have. My parents were doctors. I wanted to make them happy. And so I ended up going to medical school in part to fulfill that goal. And um, on top of that, then decided, really, I didn't want to work for the government. So I wanted to try to do it privately. And that launched for me a whole set of companies and, and uh, competitions to try and open up and create a personal spaceflight industry where all of us could eventually buy a ticket and go to space. And I mean, you've essentially done that, right? You've got this company, Space Adventures. You've got Zero Gravity Corp. You've got uh, Rocket Racing League. And I see that Space Adventures has actually you know, already conducted seven private missions to outer space, yes? Yeah, it's actually uh, eight at this point. So those are the companies I've, I've basically been trying to pull together the parts and pieces that would enable private individuals to not only go to space, but help, and help open the career uh, and the opportunities thereof. So uh, one of the companies, Space Adventures, we have a deal with the Russian Space Agency, and we've sent eight clients to the International Space Station. The price started as low as $20 million. It's up close to $50 million right now. But for that, you get, you know, you train for six months in Star City, then you go to the uh, uh, to Kazakhstan and launch in the Soyuz and go to the space station for 10 days. And it's an incredible, you know, the, the world's largest, you know, $100 billion hotel. I don't know how many stars that qualifies in for, but it's a lot. And uh, 10 days on orbit um, and come back down. And now you're one of really only 550 humans that have ever gone into space. Uh, the other company, Zero-G, puts people up into weightlessness. Uh, we have a modified 727 approved by the FAA that does these parabolic flights, same way that uh, Tom Hanks and Ron Howard made Apollo 13 in these large arcs. You're weightless for 30 seconds. It's how NASA's trained their astronauts for 40 years. And we're probably best known for having flown Stephen Hawking, uh, the world's expert in gravity, into zero gravity, you know, out of his wheelchair for the first time in 40 years. And I've done that flight like 80 times. It's extraordinary. Now, have you been to the space station yourself? Not yet. I still have to sell one of my companies so I can afford the, uh, the $45 million price tag, but I sure hope to. Got it. You know, um, sometimes when you travel to a foreign country and then you come back home, you sort of see things with a new perspective. 
I wonder if that's the same type of experience you have when you travel to outer space and then come home. Uh, it is, actually. It's, uh, there's a term called the overview effect that a friend of mine, Frank White, coined many years ago. And the notion of you know seeing this precious blue sphere orbiting below you where everything you've ever known, every piece of human history is right there and there are no borders and you see the earth as a pristine jewel and you see the thin layer of the atmosphere. It's an extraordinary view and I, you know, the best I've seen is from, uh, you know, 80,000 feet in a MiG-25 fighter where you can see the curvature of the earth. But my friends who've been to orbit and, and I've got many friends who've, who've made the journey uh, say it's uh, you know, it's it's something which is deeply affects the human psyche, and so one of my ideas is maybe we can send all the politicians there, and if we don't like it, we can leave them there. You know, I can't imagine anything more challenging than building the personal spaceflight industry. I mean, you're essentially selling hope in very cynical times. I know you are promoting this lunar mission, which is uh, you know something that is yet to be conducted. What is the key to infusing others with hope and faith, you know, uh, in these times of austerity and cynicism? So it's, you know, the, the realization is that um, we as humans are unfortunately evolutionarily wired to constantly be looking for bad news. Um, uh, there is a little part of the brain called the amygdala, which as we evolved 150,000 years ago, when you saw a rustle of you know, uh, in the leaves in the bush, your first thought was lion, not wind. And because of that, you stayed alive. You know, 99% of the time, it was, in fact, just the wind. But the 1% that it was a predator, if you didn't, you know, worry about that, you'd get eaten. So there is, in essence, the realization that uh, humans are wired to be perceiving and looking for bad news. It's the reason that uh, the, you know, uh, newspapers and television, you know, if you look at it objectively, have 90% negative stories about this war or this death or this negative story because that's what captures our attention. But the fact of the matter is that the news is extraordinarily good. If you look into the numbers, um, the fact that today we're living in an extraordinary time, that that 95% of the people under the U.S. poverty line have a television, a telephone, working air conditioning, you know, something like 80% of a car, even though they're below the poverty line, you know, a hundred years ago, the wealthiest people on the planet would have considered these the greatest luxuries. So if you think about it across time, uh, we're heading towards a world of abundance. I give the example of a African, uh, you know, a Maasai warrior in the middle of Africa on a smartphone, on a cell phone has better mobile telephony than the President of the United States did 25 years ago. And if they're on Google, they've got access to more knowledge than the President of the United States did 15 years ago. They're living in a world of information, communication, abundance. And, and so that's what all of these technologies are giving us, a world of abundance, soon to be abundant energy and water and food and education and health care. It's just hard for people to see it, but the numbers tell the story in a very uh, convincing fashion. We're going to continue our conversation with Peter Diamandis. Uh, but before we do, just a quick note to those of you who may be listening to this podcast 
uh, on social media today. If you are listening to the podcast on socialmediatoday.com and you want to subscribe to the original feed, you can get it at ontherecordpodcast.com. Now, beyond commerce, what's driving you to do this? Or, I mean, I've got to think you're looking beyond personal space flight. I've got to think you're thinking about other things with respect to how we as a race evolve beyond this planet. Am I right? Absolutely. I mean, I'm driven by the realization that every single problem we have on this planet can be solved. It's really, we're living in a magical time where individuals and small groups empowered by these technologies I speak about and will speak about, um, uh, we have the power to do what only large corporations or governments could do before us. So the question is, what problem do you want to solve? You know, what is the, what's bothering you most? Instead of complaining about it, go out there and solve it. Uh, at Singularity University, uh, we ask our graduate students to come up with a 10 to the 9th uh, plus product or company, meaning create a product or company that has the ability to affect a billion people positively within a decade. Because that's now what you can do with the right combination of people, capital, and technology. So that notion that we can do that is intoxicating to me. And um, whether, you know, space flight was where I started, but I now focus my, my passions and interests on the world's grand challenges through the XPRIZE, through SU, on water, food, energy, healthcare, you know, name it. Well, let's talk about that for a minute, because you co-founded Singularity University, which is an academic institution uh, that is trying to foster leaders to work on humanity's largest challenges. So... Let me ask you, I mean, does a matriculant decide what the challenges are or does Singular University? So we have two programs at SU. One is uh, for executives. We bring in uh, executives from around the world or they, they apply at the uh, singularityu.org website. We have about 60 or 70 executives come together for four days or seven days. And during that period, we uh, give them an integrated view of where AI, robotics, nanomaterials, biotechnology, embedded networks, computers, uh, medical systems, all these areas are going over the next 2, 5, 10, 20 years. And, you know, if you're not cognizant of it, it can put you out of business or it can help you leapfrog your, uh, your, your competition. Uh, for our graduate programs, we bring in 80 grad students this year from 35 countries. And we say, listen, these are the world's biggest problems. These are the problems affecting a billion people. And we all know them. It's water, it's food, it's healthcare, it's education, it's energy. And we say, these technologies that we're teaching you about are the levers on the world that can allow you for the first time ever to solve these problems. It's not the problems um, solvable with today's technologies, but it's solvable with the projected technology we'll have in five years or ten years. You know, as one small example, we recently had um, uh, Watson, IBM's latest supercomputer that beat the top two Jeopardy uh, humans, if you would. And I love the title that the media gave it, uh, Watson Vanquishes Human Foes. Uh, it was, you know, a very, very powerful image. But that same kind of intelligence, the ability for a computer and artificial intelligence to understand the nuance of a Jeopardy show, 
can allow those supercomputers, which ultimately will become free and available on the cloud, to diagnose anybody um, of their disease or be the best teacher that any kid, no matter where they are, in the middle of Manhattan or in the middle of Zimbabwe, on a on a you know iPad to you know be, have the best education ever. I mean, it's it's incredible where we're heading, and I think most people don't realize it. There was an interesting article in uh, the current issue of Wired magazine about Khan Academy. Um, I don't know if you saw it, but he's a, a MIT grad who is um, doing these short. No, I, I love his I love his work. Absolutely. Great. And then there was a, another article, actually, in the New York Times this week about two Stanford uh, computer science professors who opened up an artificial intelligence uh, class. Um, via e-learning and they got 56,000 registrants to take this class Sebastian, online. Yeah, Sebastian Thrun, who's uh, the, one of the two professors there who's uh, both a faculty at Singular University as well and one of the advisors at XPRIZE, fantastic guy. He ran the team at Stanford that won the DARPA grant challenge for autonomous cars. And the notion that you know the world can peer into and participate in a class like that, you know, we're reinventing education. Uh, I think education and healthcare are two fields that will become completely disrupted this next decade, completely and totally. It will not uh, really understand how we held on to it for so long. And another part, I just came out of a series of meetings at XPRIZE where, you know, the experts I was speaking with and I agreed that 20 years from now, I could imagine a world where the level of healthcare and education in Africa blows away what we have in the United States because it's a greenfield operation. It's not regulated. We don't have the resistance of existing infrastructure and where the very best of technologies can be deployed without limitation. Talk to us for a minute about the future of education, because there's certainly you know a growing choir of advocates talking about um, getting away from instructor-led learning and getting away even from uh, participant-paced learning online to a more chaotic uh, social model for learning, where uh, the participants figure out how to solve problems on their own, kind of like it happens in the real world. Uh, do you have a, a, a taste for how this might manifest itself? Um, and or do you have any examples? Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, I find it almost hilarious that we still have education that was designed for the Industrial Revolution. If you think about the Industrial Revolution, people went to their workstations uh, they did their work, a bell rang, you then moved to the next location, and that's the way we teach. You know, kids sit in their classroom, uh, the bell rings, they move to their next classroom, and we teach them a skill. And it's just, it's just completely and totally inappropriate for the day and the age where today we are plugged into the net, knowledge and information is instantaneous, it matters much more not having memorized something, but your ability to ask the right question. So the area that I'm focused on that I'm most excited about is, in fact, the idea of creating a new generation of competitive games, games that, in fact, are able to plug into the brain, into the way we get addicted and compelled to play these games and teach us in a way that's fun, that's addictive, that's viral, and that really transforms making uh, learning fun. So we're looking at designing it and XPRIZE specifically in that arena. 
So ultimately, uh, it's about changing completely. So you might actually play games all day to learn your stuff and then spend time interacting with your fellow students to learn, you know, ask the right questions and become much more investigatory driven in your learning. If if a listener buys into what you're saying and they want to execute this, but they're not a software developer, are there platforms available that they can customize to do this? Well, so the uh, uh, there's a few companies that are working on this today, a lot of entrepreneurial companies, but um, it doesn't exist really at the level that uh, that would transform the entire educational uh, industry, and, and that's really what I'm what I'm aiming at at the X Prize. So we're in the middle right now of raising the capital to design an education X Prize. And uh, this kind of a competition would challenge hundreds of teams, if not thousands of teams around the world, to build a game that is effective, addictive, and viral. Effective meaning that anyone who played the game learned the material. You could not have gotten through the game without having learned the subject area. Uh, addictive meaning that 80% of the people who start the game end the game. In other words, you you can't stop. You have to get through it. And then viral meaning that each person is encouraged or, or driven to bring in their friends. So every user who starts brings 10 of their friends on. So you can imagine these games, you know, hundreds of these games for math, Spanish, Chinese, whatever it might be, um, being out there and you play games, you learn the materials, you interact with your friends, and we really engage a new way of thinking about education. And, and you think it's essentially, you know, this word that gets thrown, thrown around a lot, gamification, is the future of education? I think it is one of the futures of education. I think that artificial intelligence, where we can, in fact, imagine a, uh, an AI tutor, an, an AI that can speak to you and listen in natural language, that represents the best professors on the planet, all integrated together, so that on your iPad, on your mobile uh, platform, whatever it might be, you know, if you don't understand a subject, you can have a conversation with this AI, and it will not only know your language skills, what your background is, what motivates you. If you love sports, it'll teach you geometry using examples from sports. If you love music, it might teach it to you from using examples of music. It, it's a personalized, customized education that you know, it's a one-on-one -on -one experience. I mean, these are the futures where, you know, school becomes instead something that's about socialization, something about interaction, and for some it's about childcare, but it's not about, um, you know, the best way to learn something because, you know, a, a teacher in the front of the, uh, the class trying to teach all 30 or 100 students in the same fashion isn't the way it's going to be done in the future. I want to switch back to uh, outer space and, and sort of wrap it up with a discussion about, uh, I guess, where you see the commercial development of, you know, commerce around spaceflight and, I don't know, maybe even the development of properties in outer space. I mean, are we going to see that? I'm 45 years old. In my life, am I going to see colonies built on other planets? So, two, two parts to that question. First of all, I think that we're on track for extending human life, so we'll have to redefine what your life means, and we'll get that's a different conversation. Uh, but I do believe that we're living 
during a day and age where during our lifetimes we're, we're peers, uh, we're going to see the human race move out irreversibly to the stars. Um, it's a magical time. This has only happened once before uh, for life on Earth when we moved out of the oceans onto land hundreds of millions of years ago. So it's not your kids or their kids. It's our lifetime where this magic is going to happen. So what we're seeing is private companies taking over for where government has been. The shuttle is now, uh, the, sh the era of the shuttle is over. Uh, we have companies like, uh, as we mentioned, Space Adventures and SpaceX and Virgin Galactic and Armadillo and Blue Origin. A lot of individuals who made their wealth in the dot-com world who are now saying, listen, I can do it better and cheaper and safer than the government did. And in fact, they're putting their money where their, their mouth is. But ultimately, everything we hold of value on Earth, metals, minerals, energy, real estate, are in near infinite quantities in space. You know, I think the first trillionaires we made as we move beyond the bounds of Earth uh, into the stars. Do we move beyond this solar system? Do we get into an environment where, you know, we can travel at a speed fast enough to get us beyond our solar system? I love reminding people that we are so young as a species. You know, we've been a technological species for, you know, arguably a hundred, maybe a couple hundred years. The science and physics we understand have been around for, again, hundreds of, of years. I think we're just at the beginning of our learning. So I would probably put more credence in uh, the vision that, that uh, Gene Roddenberry had for Star Trek than the limitations we believe that exist right now. I think uh, we have the tools that are coming online. We will learn more in the next decade than we learned in the last hundred years. So I don't put limitations on the human, uh, the human race or what we can do. Um, that's why it's, I think, the most extraordinary time to be alive. If you had to lay odds on whether or not you know, in our lifetime, we encounter some sort of contact with intelligent life forms from other worlds. What kind of odds would you lay? Interesting. So I put odds at 99% that we will encounter life, that I think, I think life is a ubiquitous element of the, of the universe. I think we'll be able to find life on Mars under the permafrost, We've seen evidence of liquid water there. Uh, I think there's uh, probably you know single cell or multicellular life there, or uh, on the you know the moons of Jupiter or Saturn, for example, in Europa. Whether or not we are going to encounter intelligent life, uh, I think that I would lay odds that there is intelligent life out there. Uh, the question is, um, you know, are we intelligent by their standards, and would they even care to communicate with us? So it's, uh, uh, it's something which would be uh, transformative, of course, but um, I'm excited to go look. Fascinating discussion. Peter Diamandes, chairman and CEO of XPRIZE Foundation, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. 
On the Record Online is hosted by Eric Schwartzman, an independent online communications consultant whose clients include the U.S. Department of State, the United States Marine Corps, the U.S. Embassy of Greece, the Government of Singapore, Johnson & Johnson, Toyota, Southern California Edison, the Environmental Defense Fund, and dozens of small to medium-sized organizations. For information about engaging Eric Schwartzman as a speaker, social media trainer, or digital strategist, visit www.ericschwartzman.com or send email to eric at ericschwartzman.com.